to stories about people. This story is Being at the Centre of Expansion by Susie Carlin. Pelvi, said Mabel, bent over and clutching at her pelvis. Pelvi. Pelvis, you mean. Pelvic? Pelvic tasis? Pelvic tilt? What? Pelvi. Mabel pushed the word or half-word through her lips again, letting it waft to the ground to be left behind her as her head entered her pelvis itself directly through her abdomen and was swallowed whole. So now Mabel was just a bent-over body with no head and therefore no up or down to her at all. She had turned in on herself completely. More completely than anyone had ever done before. Certainly more literally. Wow, said John rather disingenuously, although Mabel couldn't hear him and there was no one else around, so no need to be embarrassed. He was, though, anyway. Embarrassed just to listen to himself be so disingenuous in the face of the most unique and total act of navel-gazing anyone was ever likely to witness or commit. He was painfully aware of being such a dork. In fact, as Mabel was the only witness to his dorkiness, John decided the best thing to do would be to walk away and just leave her there, pretend he never knew her and that the whole thing never happened. And then that would be true. So he did. Meanwhile, inside her own pelvis, Mabel thought she could hear Frank Sinatra singing Fly Me to the Moon. She tried to sing along, but things were packed pretty tight in there and there wasn't really enough room for her lips to move. So she settled for humming. It was such a catchy tune. She wondered if she was tapping her foot somewhere out there on the outside and then wondered why, if she was inside her own pelvis, she wouldn't know that. But it was true. Her pelvis and everything in it occupied all her senses and left no room for anything else. She also wondered why Fly Me to the Moon was the soundtrack of her pelvis. It was not as dark as she would have imagined. In fact, everything glowed a warm, welcoming red, surrounded by a deep pink aura. It was soothing. Nice. Mabel had to admit, she kind of liked it there. Entering her own pelvis had a curious effect on Mabel's other senses. Her secondary senses, as she'd like to think of them, like memory. She retained a deep primal memory she could feel in the pit of her brain. The memory that I am a me called Mabel, and Mabel is a person. A human being of the primate class, characterised by a generally upright stance, spoken language, and a large brain. A large brain that was currently embedded in a region of the body it does not frequently visit. So she wasn't really sure what she was doing there. Looking for something, she supposed? She had a vague sense that she got impatient about something. Primary character trait of I am a me called Mabel got fed up and decided to do something about it. Her memory retained some other stuff as well, like lyrics to Frank Sinatra songs, Frank Sinatra himself and what a flute sounds like because this was the swingy version of Fly Me to the Moon that featured a jazzy flute. 
it also retained an image of the black patent leather Mary Janes she had when she was five, an impression of what it is like to fly economy class in an airplane, a faded visual of a crude and simple map of the female reproductive system last seen in fifth grade, the meaning of the word abomasum, the fourth of the four stomachs of a ruminant, also the meaning of the word ruminant, and a general concept of monetary systems. It always comes down to money, she thought sadly when she got to the part about the monetary systems. She remembered a bunch of other stuff too, but as she was checking her memory to see what she could remember, these were the first things that came up. Mabel thought about her hair. She wondered why she couldn't feel her hair inside her pelvis. Wouldn't it tickle? But then she also couldn't really feel her head inside her pelvis. That is, her pelvis did not feel her head inside of it, but her head certainly felt like it was inside her pelvis. Frank Sinatra was winding it up. Well, now that she was there, she might as well have a look around. It was a good thing she didn't need to breathe. She always thought the human body was made up of a considerable amount of oxygen, but now that she was inside of it, she realized it was almost as if things were vacuum-packed into that tight space. Then she started to worry about gas. What had she eaten for lunch? And then that started a whole confusing thought cycle about intestinal gas versus stomach gas, and what if she had to burp instead of... silence. Probably better that way. But there was a soft click and a whir, and then... Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. The song started up again. It must be on some kind of loop. An intestinal loop, thought Mabel, and then her whole bent-over headless body shook from laughter that had no way out. If John were still there watching over her, or if anyone else had come along, they would have seen her oddly pretzeled form convulse and think it was a seizure. But it wasn't. She was just laughing. I crack myself up, she confirmed to herself in general, and her pelvis in particular. In case her pelvis didn't know that about her, she figured. Because here was the thing. There is no doubt that Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon is an iconic and defining moment in American popular music, especially the jazzy flute version, but Mabel was really a Tony Bennett girl. So she found it a little disconcerting that her pelvis seemed to prefer Frank. Shouldn't there be some sort of uniformity among her body parts taste in music? Do her shoulders groove to Mel Torme? Are her knees Billie Holiday fans? And what about rock and pop and punk and alternative? What if she found some little recess somewhere, her appendix, say, that was still clinging to grunge? Anyway, things inside the pelvis were pulsing along in 4-4 time, and this was the point in the song that really starts to swing. If she bopped her head from left to right, she could bump it against her bladder, but quickly realised that probably wasn't a very smart thing to do. She did twist her neck around a little bit to get a view of her reproductive organs. There were her fallopian tubes, floating like those little eagles. Tails anchored in the ocean floor and swaying with the currents she had seen on nature programs about the Red Sea. Uterus, 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 uterus. 
floating in the middle of her pelvis like a jewel suspended on gossamer wire in the treasury of a sultan or mighty queen. She supposed a queen would be more appropriate as far as royalty goes in the first place, and if she was going to mythologize her own uterus inside her own pelvis, also in the first place. She remembered Gunther von Hagen's. The only other time she had seen a real human uterus was at an exhibit of plastinated bodies and body parts. Some body parts were sliced thin and splayed out under the thick glass of display cases that made her think of beef tongue at the deli. She thought about beef tongue at the deli. Among the deli-sliced organs, uterus. It made her think of an atom. Atom? No, atom. An atom, how all the power and pain of creation could be compressed into such a tiny vessel and then, whoosh, unleashed upon the world. An atom, a uterus, a universe. Looking at her own universe, she meant uterus. Why was she getting so tongue-tied? She thought about how her uterus was formed while she was inside another uterus, which itself was formed while inside another uterus, etc., etc., and on and on, like holding up one mirror to another and getting lost inside the reflections, like cubic space division, as Mabel's mother liked to say. Mabel remembered her mother. Her mother was wrong. It wasn't at all like cubic space division. Then, Mabel heard voices. She wondered if John was still standing there. John, she suddenly realized, was a character that would never pay off. He would never fill her heart with song and let her sing forevermore. He would only stand around and say disingenuous things because he always felt somehow inferior to Mabel. Mabel realized he probably was inferior to her, at least in intellect, and it was maybe time she stopped being nice about it and making excuses for him standing around and saying disingenuous things. John was probably standing around right now saying something supremely disingenuous, like, wow, or, hey Mabel, you all right in there? Or he was already feeling like an idiot for saying it. Was she all right in here, though? A rare good question, John. If you have indeed asked it and not just run off, overcome by your own dorkiness. The thing was, she couldn't remember how she had gotten there. She remembered how she had gotten inside her own pelvis, but she couldn't remember how she had come into being, where Mabel came from, how she had gotten out of the little patch of ground she occupied on planet Earth, silently spinning in the uterus. Universe, she meant. Was she born? Was she grown in a test tube? Was she cloned from a sheep, somehow? She finally remembered. And then, there it was. There had been a burning sensation, unlocalized, but deep in the pit of her gut that just wouldn't go away. Not painful, really, more like the heat that slowly spreads along the bottom of a bed of coals, slightly pulsating, throbbing. And suddenly she felt very cold, and the heat seemed very enticing, so she pushed even farther into her pelvis until she got her shoulders inside, and then her torso, and legs, and even her feet, until her own pelvis had swallowed her whole. Now her pelvis could feel her inside of itself at the same time she could feel herself inside her pelvis. If John was still there watching her, or if anyone else had come along, all they would see is a pelvis, rounded and full, 
laying on the ground next to a pair of paint leather Mary Janes. Because Mabel was pretty sure her shoes didn't make it inside of her with everything else. The heat felt really good. She stayed there for a while, curled up inside her own pelvis, listening to Fly Me to the Moon for maybe the tenth time already. She might have fallen asleep at one point. The truth was, she had no idea how long she'd been there. At first it was nice, but by around the 18th or was it the 80th time Fly Me to the Moon looped around, she was feeling pretty cramped and it was pretty muggy and hot and it really was getting kind of uncomfortable. She heard the voices again. The voices seemed to be coming from a shadowy little chamber just between her reproductive organs and her bladder. She had thought it was just empty space at first, but clearly it wasn't. Mabel twisted herself around and headed in exactly that direction. Her shin knocked against something sharp and hard. A wooden table. How a wooden table got into Mabel's pelvis, and specifically inside this, whatever this organ was called, was quite beyond her. She would have thought she'd feel it going down, but then she instantly forgot what she would have thought she'd feel going down. Someone turned on a lamp. Around the table sat five men in ladder-back chairs. This organ is like an attic, thought Mabel. And who are these men? The men ignored her for the most part and continued their discussion, speaking in low tones, very clearly all business and, and very efficient at it too. Four of the men appeared to be cut from the same cloth, white, late middle age, dressed in smart casual clothes that hinted at wealth and Ivy League educations. The fifth man was Bono. He had his sunglasses on. Mabel was, as ever, impressed by his commitment to those sunglasses even if she thought they were a stupid, adolescent affection of intelligent passion, much like his music. Bono and the other four men clearly formed a committee. They diligently studied charts and reports, making decisions about something while utterly ignoring Mabel's presence, by which Mabel was more than a little insulted since everyone was sitting in her pelvis. After all, and she didn't remember inviting them here. Especially Bono. Mabel noticed a tape player perched on a demi-loon behind the men. And how did that get there? Click. The song was over. The men stopped talking but continued reviewing documents in the silence. One of the men, not Bono, got up and rewound the tape again. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Mabel moved a little closer and could just peer over one of the men's shoulders, not the guy with the sunglasses, and make out his chart. There was a long drawing of something that looked like eels perched in the seabed, except there were only two eels and a jewel suspended by gossamer wire in the treasury of a sultan or a queen. Connectors with arrows on one end pointed from the eels to the jewel, and call-out boxes referred to a report in a list of ID numbers. The men were discussing this very list, but couldn't seem to agree on anything. The guy with the sunglasses, why was he wearing sunglasses indoors, seemed to be either the leader or an honorary guest. Either way, he didn't say much, just sat there, moving his lips to the music. 
Mabel had to agree. It was a catchy tune, but this guy seemed superfluous. Superfluous to what? Superfluous? One by one, the men closed their reports, straightened the charts into a neat stack and stared at the table, unmoving. Even Mr. Sunglasses, although he didn't have a report to close. Mabel wondered who was singing. It was a catchy tune, though. She tapped her foot in time to the music. 4-4 time. This was... Maybe the wrong thing to do. The men stared straight at Mabel, seeing her for the first time. She squirmed, opened her mouth, searching for some explanation as to how she came to trespass in their private boardroom. All she found was, I am a me called Mabel. In unison, the men raised their arms and pointed their fingers right at her. They didn't seem angry or anything. Mabel wasn't sure whether they were accusing or choosing, and then couldn't remember what the difference was anyway. She couldn't remember anything, it seemed. Where was her head? I am a me called Mabel, Mabel thought. Mabel backed up, tried to back away from the pointing fingers of those men, the sunglasses. But there was no backing up in her pelvis. The whole thing was giving her the worst kind of migraine, blood throbbing her brain in 4-4 time. Mabel got herself turned around again and pushed head first into the only space big enough for her swelling, pounding 4-4 cranium. A long, dark canal with only a pinpoint of light at the end. I am a me called Mabel, and Mabel is a person, Mabel realized. Once in the canal, Mabel started to push, push away from those men and her head and that ceaseless, metered beating, and found, as she pushed along that dark canal, that her shoulders were really making things difficult and slowing her down. It was a lot of work, but she kept right on pushing because Mabel was never one to give up. She pushed until her head popped out, then her shoulders, and then her arms, which was useful because then she could pull herself out of the rest of the way until she finally fully emerged, torso, pelvis, legs, and feet. There she sat, on the ground, blinking up at the sky. She'd forgotten all about John, so it was just as well he wasn't there. The fresh air felt good even if the light was a little too bright for her eyes just then, and she really wasn't very sure what to make of any of this at all, but, oh, that air was nice. So she opened her mouth as wide as she could and took a giant gulp of that clean, crisp, blue air, and... If anyone had measured the time from the moment Mabel entered her pelvis to now, they would have noticed that 10 to the power of minus 42 seconds had gone by. You're listening to Stories About People. This story is called The Dead of Winter by Chris Ward. Winter is easy when you no longer feel the cold. 
We watched the humans shivering around us, stamping in a frantic attempt to keep warm and rubbing their hands together to get their blood flowing. They wear layers of clothing to battle against the cold with little rosy noses peeking out from hats, scarves, ear mufflers and high collars. Speaking and breathing, they make ghosts with their breath. The lower the temperature, the larger the spirit. This makes us stand out from them. We have no breath, and thus make no ghosts. And believe me, I can see the irony there. No matter the weather, we wear the same. Come rain or shine, searing heat or biting cold, the same tatty rags hang from our frame, again marking us as different from them, but also as an affront to the humans, and showing them where we're superior. Summer is far worse for us, because as the mercury rises, so does the smell. I say worse for us, but we don't actually care as we have no sense of smell in the, in the human meaning. It's only worse for them. The humans always show a general disgust with our appearance, but we can change that if we wanted to. But it's harder to master smell. In the early days of cohabitation, we tried perfume, cologne, herbs, bleach, and even garlic. Nothing truly masked that stench of decay and rotting flesh. So in the end, we stopped trying, and finally we stopped caring, as another mark of individuality and defiance. Less of a problem, but more of an embarrassment, is the snow. As we have no body temperature, when it lands on us, it doesn't melt, sometimes sitting on our shoulders or head for hours until someone points it out. If we stay still for an extended period of time during heavy snow, we can even become buried entirely, having to shake ourselves free like a dog drying itself, which is incredibly degrading. One of the worst aspects of winter for our kind is the ice. Even for those of us who bother to wear shoes in any sort of reasonable state, our balance is the real problem. We are not coordinated creatures. We we lurch, we shamble, we blunder through life in an ungainly mess, falling and tripping regularly, but swift to recover. But when there is ice, we trip and fall so much more often, and getting up again is also made harder. For those of us who have limbs or, or parts of limbs missing, the recovery process is doubly hard. Staying upright on one leg or getting upright again with one arm is a near impossible task on an unforgiving, slippery surface. The more courageous, or stupid, humans dare each other to push some of us over and watch us slide away in farcical horror. I hear there are extra points if we can't get up again. I remember one year hearing about one of our kind starving on an icy lake after a group of obnoxious children slid them down a river on a bet. Sadly, as we also can't swim, when the ice thawed, they sank into the watery depths. I guess they're still there, starving and drowning and freezing and thawing over and over again. I don't understand why the humans treat us like this anymore. Simmering resentment for past conflicts, I guess, but that was so long ago, and we learned to change and evolve. Why can't they? When the late great Dr. Penny Drake proposed her 12-point plan on how humans and the dead can all get along, we were the most enthusiastic signatures, and the humans agreed 
begrudgingly. Dr. Drake realized that the problem was the constant cycle of death. As our kind killed more humans, there were more of us. Remove the newly dead from the equation, and we're less of a threat. We wanted, no, needed and craved to eat. And if that could be controlled, then so could we. Her solution was to turn naturally dead humans into a food source for us. It was a bold and shocking proposal, and one she had to work hard to make people see it sense. But eventually, all sides realized that it was a practical solution, and slowly it became acceptable. And when something becomes acceptable and mainstream, it turns into an economy. So there were suppliers, distributors, food stores, and restaurants dedicated to feeding our immense hunger, run by humans and us alike. It's big business, and the numbers of meat murders vastly decreased. Education was another of Dr. Drake's proposals. She theorized that with our driving desires commoditized and under control, if we were then shown compassion, an alternative lifestyle and given knowledge, then we would become more human-like. She underestimated the extent of our hunger that feeds everything we do, and I would hazard that not only are we fast catching up with the humans in intellect, but we may even overtake them in a few generations. Initially, the humans profited from providing education to us, and then rapidly, we began to teach our own kind. And I've even heard of more progressive pockets of humanity that have accepted us to educate their kind. Another problem is that without directed malice, which still happens from time to time, it is quite hard for us to die. We have a minimal impact on the human health system, preferring to wear our ailments and injuries with pride. There are some of us who use our missing body parts as an opportunity to accessorize. For example, replacing a missing leg with a ski pole to aid walking in ice, or affixing snow boots to our feet. I even recall someone who had lost the entire bottom half of their body affixing themselves to a toboggan in winter. The humans would never take such an approach. They're too damn proud of how they look. We treat the end of life in a far more pragmatic and practical way than humans do, thanks to our unique perspective of death. Every year, we will sit with our local communities and assess what we wanted to accomplish with our existence and if we are happy with our accomplishments so far. Once in a while, we decide that we've had enough and opt to end things. A swift blow to the head and that's it. No painful, tedious process, just an end. Then we bury and celebrate the achievements of our kind. We're not cannibals, after all. in Berlin. Find out more about us at storiesaboutpeople.ca.